0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter, On today's episode, I speak with Jonathan Petz, who's the co-founder of ImmigrationHelp.org, a tech nonprofit helping low-income immigrants make their immigration dreams come true. Prior to co-founding ImmigrationHelp.org, Jonathan co-founded another legal tech nonprofit, Upsolve, which was a Y Combinator winter 19 batch and practiced at two international law firms. He has served as an advisor, on international law to both the IMF and the World Bank. In 2017, Jonathan was recognized by Fastcase as one of the 50 most innovative leaders in the legal profession. Jonathan is the proud son and husband of immigrants. I met him and the team via Fast Forward, which is an accelerator for tech nonprofits, and have been following along, impressed that they've been able to have 5,000 people use the website already, raised over 250,000, and growing, and built a team of eight people, including part-time. On this episode, we discuss legal tech nonprofits and how you build them, training that lawyers receive that's counterproductive to being a founder and how to unlearn that. We talk about pricing and earned revenue in nonprofits and how to do that right, and many other things. It's a great episode, so I wanted to bring it to you despite having some technical difficulties, and some sound issues, which I hope will not impact your experience too much. Please stay tuned. Jonathan, welcome to Startups for Good. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Miles. I'm excited to be here with you.
0: Well, let's jump right in. My question is, are lawyers trained to be bad entrepreneurs?
1: (laughs) I would say yes, actually. Um, Lawyers go through really extensive training on, on how to mitigate risk. And they're really good at doing that. And I think part of being an entrepreneur is being able to see past risk to, to be able to see the opportunity.
0: So, how did you untrain yourself? So, a lot of that had to do
1: with my co founder. Um, at the time, my co founder, Rohan, was 20 years old. He was a, a Harvard junior and he was just totally fearless. And I remember starting with him and thinking, this is a terrible idea. It's definitely going to fail. But I just kept going because. I was doing it with him. And, and that was sort of how I, I untrained myself to, to only see risk.
0: Yeah, I think lawyers are so often taught to be agents and not principals. Yeah. And, and as you said, really to focus on risk. And I think that can really go against this ambition of entrepreneurs to see, like, how can we do 10 times better and how can we solve problems in a new way? So I'm really curious about this area. So, how do you decide to to get into bankruptcy?
1: In my prior life, I was a, a corporate bankruptcy lawyer for a large firm in New York, and you know, while I was doing that work, I was doing some pro bono work helping these uh, low-income New Yorkers who are usually buried with uh, medical debt. So, you can imagine making twenty thousand dollars a year, having children, and being forty thousand dollars in medical debt. You're never going to be able to, to budget your way out of that. You, you really need a fresh start. And that's what bankruptcy was designed for. And the problem is, is you know, as I was learning, that it actually costs $1,500, $2,000 to file for bankruptcy to get a fresh start when you're $40,000 in debt. And one of the first pro bono clients that I helped whose name was Alice, she said that you know, basically she, she called me back a year later after she had you know, cleared this $40,000 in debt. Her credit score is 100 points higher. She had a better job. Um, and she said something which really resonated with me, which was, um, if I hadn't found you, I'd still be trapped in, in this cycle of debt um, because it, it cost $2,000 to hire a lawyer. And if I had $2,000, I would never be filing for bankruptcy. And so that really made me realize that you know, the people who need our social safety net, who need legal services the most in this country are the ones who are just least able to access it.
0: So I'm curious, the typical profile of someone who's declaring bankruptcy, is this someone who has racked up a bunch of consumer credit card debt because they haven't been budgeting appropriately? Or is it more often this case of medical debt, as you mentioned? It's
1: most of the, the, the biggest cause, is medical debt. Um, the, the next one after that is job loss and, and divorce. Those are sort of the big three. Um, there certainly is some percentage of people who are just using credit irresponsibly, but it's a really small percentage in the, um, in the big picture.
0: Yeah, I think it's so fascinating to me the way the medical system interacts with the financial services and bankruptcy ultimately. If we organized healthcare differently, in this country, we'd have yeah. a very different financial situation.
1: Exactly, it's, it's really shocking how you can be tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt in just like an instant. And it could happen to anyone.
0: And so, you started this uh, with an undergrad. You were a lawyer. Uh, where did you turn next? I mean, how did you know where to get started?
1: So there was a lot of there was a lot of missteps, a lot of mistakes along the way. I mean, where we started first was we built a, a type form that had all of the questions that were listed uh, on the bankruptcy forms. And bankruptcy forms are you know, basically 80-page PDF with lots of legalese. So we made a type form in plain language to find out, can people actually do this online? That was like a, a big question, especially low-income people. And we would get the answers to that type form. After seeing people sort of fill them out in in person in Brooklyn, and then we would take that data and we would manually fill it into this 80-page PDF, and then we'd submit it to the court.
0: So this was really like a MVP in a true lean startup methodology.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And through that process, you validated, you learned that people would stick with it and they could answer the questions when they were rephrased in plain language.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was the, that was the big unknown, right? Could, could this process be automated at all, or was it just too complicated? Uh, and we learned that people could actually use uh, a web application to answer questions that could lead to a, a successful bankruptcy application.
0: And how did you fund this?
1: Well, uh, so my co-founder got some startup funding from Harvard. He won a bunch of uh, pitch competitions. And then we got really lucky uh, with a foundation in, in New York City that was called the Robin Hood Foundation that was funding innovative uses of technology to, to help low-income Americans. And uh, we got some startup funding from them and and you know the, a bunch of introductions from them to other funders. And then we were sort of off to the races from there.
0: And what sort of scale has it achieved? So
1: Upsol now uh, there's about 2 million uh, low-income Americans who are coming to its site Every year to to get free education on the bankruptcy process, and, and from that there is some number of thousands who are using the site to determine are they a good fit for bankruptcy or not because you know bankruptcy is always a last option and many people it's not a good fit for and we'll tell them that and then there's been about six thousand uh, low income families that have actually used Upsolve to discharge their debt. So it's, it's been used now to get a fresh start for over uh, $300 million of, of debt.
0: Wow, that's great. I mean, things are going well. Why leave? Well, I
1: had a, a life change two years ago, and uh, my wife moved to Boston. Well, my wife got her, her dream job here in Boston. And um, rather than continue remotely with Upsolve, and I uh, at the time, I said, "Oh, I would never work on a remote company. I you know this is sort of pre-pandemic. And what I want to do is I want to take what I've learned and, and apply it to this next great uh, access to justice challenge of, of low income immigration. Um, and so so that's what I did. and so I'm the next step of this journey in, in immigration.
0: And do you feel like immigration is a bigger leverage point than bankruptcy well
1: it's it's just a much bigger market, a much bigger number of of low-income people who are affected, you know, our, our core audience is uh, dreamers, basically refugees, people that would qualify for asylum, people from disaster-stricken countries, and, and abused immigrant women of, of sort of all stripes. And there's a number of different immigration applications that, that are available for these folks that can really help them get status in the US, get work permits, be able to, to build a life here. But unfortunately, it costs thousands of dollars, even more than a bankruptcy lawyer costs to prepare these basic forms. So that's, that's the problem that we're trying to solve right now.
0: So tell us more about how you do that. It's a very basic TurboTax
1: style model. So you'll come to our website and you'll answer some simple questions to see if you're eligible for one of our immigration applications. And uh, if you have a hard, you know, a, a very complex case with mitigating factors like, you know, past immigration fraud issues or, or past criminality issues, um, you really do need a lawyer for that. And we'll refer you to a, a local legal aid organization. But if you don't have that, those factors, and we can help you, you will go through a online web application, very similar to TurboTax, which will ask you questions, which will generate the immigration forms that we'll review, and then we'll send them to you to file with filing instructions.
0: And how many people have you been able to help? So we have, since launching, we've diagnosed
1: uh, over 4,000 low-income immigrants for eligibility. And um, we have 600 applications in process right now and about in process of being prepared and 200, over 200 that have been completed.
0: And so software really can take the place of lawyers for these particular types of cases?
1: Yeah, we think so. We think that if you can screen out the, the complicated edge cases that lawyers will always be needed for, there's a whole lot of really simple, straightforward, form-based cases that can be done by technology. And you can help a whole lot of people who just will never be able to afford paying a lawyer for thousands of dollars.
0: Now, you mentioned some of the examples of types of people you help, and it sounds like some of those cases in particular, they really could use the help, and I understand why it's good for them. you have any thoughts on why is it good for the rest of us? Well, I think
1: it, it comes back to, to America is a, a nation of immigrants, and we believe that in, in our DNA that having... People from other parts of the world who, who are legally eligible to get status here, um, having them come is, is a good thing because it, it creates diversity of thought, diversity of experience. And, and all of that is part of the melting pot that, that makes America the place that it is. I mean, you know, you think about um, people like Sergey Brin, you know, he came from Russia. Uh, basically, a refugee, super low income. There was no indication that he was ever going to be, you know, a, a very influential a part of American society. But we brought him here, and now he created a company that's created thousands and thousands of jobs and created um, so much value for, for our economy and for the world. So, that I think is part of why it's so important to make America accessible to, to people that are eligible for immigration status, but just will never be able to afford a
0: lawyer. Yeah, it's not only the individuals themselves, even, you know, low-skilled immigrants who who may not be able to get education while they're here or move beyond low-skill work, their children will have a completely different opportunity set That's and right. can become those kind of entrepreneurs. That's you know, right. Or, yeah. or other contributing members of, of our society. It's So, so many of uh, the great people in America have been immigrants, to your point. So I, I, I see that. Do you think that the immigration system is designed to be complicated? Is it is it feel like it's getting harder or has been getting harder?
1: Yeah, yeah it's gotten so much harder over the last five years. And in, in, in part, that was, you know, that was those were intentional policy decisions by um, the previous presidential administration. And so you know, what they did was they they increased the length and complexity of immigration forms by a, a multiple. Um, so you're now talking about a hundred pages of, of dense legalese that would be hard for anyone to fill out who isn't a lawyer, much less someone for whom English isn't their first language.
0: Well. Wow. And so this little nonprofit kind of pushing in the opposite direction, Fascinating to 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 think about the the policy implications of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, we have we have a big bureaucratic obstacles to, to overcome, but but that's why we're doing this work. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning.
0: I'm curious as you think more broadly, you know, think about bankruptcy or applying for SNAP or uh, something else. Like, should government services need another organization on the front end? I mean, even think about turbo tax, like. Should we have a government that's more user driven in the designing of these processes so that people don't have to get assistance?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think creating very simple government user interfaces is just such an opportunity to make our country stronger, more equitable on, on so many levels. You know, there's a question of whether it can be done inside government. Is, is it possible to recruit the tech talent to do this inside government. And, you know, there's the U.S. Digital Service, which is one example of that. But it's hard. As, as, any, as any entrepreneur knows, recruiting engineers, recruiting designers, it's really hard and keeping them is even harder. So I think there is a, an argument to be made that, that outsourcing this has, should be the default.
0: Did it take a lot of engineers to build uh, Upsolve or immigrants like us? So
1: uh, it will, immigrationhelp.org is, is our current name. Um, oh, sorry. But um, Upsolve has, has had some basically two, about two engineers that have built Upsolve, um, which, as I say, that is a, is a very small, small number when you think about the impact that it's had. Um, but actually, immigrationhelp.org, we are exclusively built on no code platforms. So, so basically, zero engineers uh, to build that. And that is, I think that's really exciting because. When you can you know automate complicated forms in a really scalable way and and not have to pay engineers, I think that that opens up a lot of opportunities to solve these kinds of problems.
0: yeah, it seems like why couldn't you do that from inside government?
1: yes, i I, I think you you can. and actually, to their credit, the state of California is is starting to do uh, some of this, automate certain forms with with no-code tools. So I think that's really an exciting model.
0: When you were considering getting into immigration, were there other areas you considered or there there other areas you see opportunity that other people should tackle?
1: Yeah, I think the law in general, when you talk about poverty law, there's so many areas that people can only access their civil rights by paying lawyers to spend you know, by paying lawyers thousands of dollars to basically fill out complicated forms. And I think all of those, there is an opportunity for uh, a tech-based, at least partial solution. So lots of areas of family law, when we're talking about, you know, restraining orders, helping, you know, women escape abuse, Uh, also no-fault divorce. In uh, many, many eviction um, proceedings, there is a uh, technology could be used to, to generate some of the basic forms, uh, debt collection defense, and uh, there's definitely others uh, as well.
0: So you' here first, folks, opportunities for tech uh, nonprofit startups. go get it. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's right. there's not there's uh, we need we need more more folks who are interested in solving legal problems with technology. so uh, anyone out there who's interested in tackling one of these, I, w- I would love to talk and, and be a cheerleader for
0: you. Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle, and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation, let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are U.S. tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. So touching on tech nonprofit, I'm curious how you chose to go that route and what have been the advantages, disadvantages?
1: yeah I think that the legal industry in particular is really well suited for tech nonprofits and, and really poorly suited for, for venture-backed startups um, and the reason is is because it costs so much to marketing costs so much in this space right if, if you wanted to buy Google Ads AdWords to find someone who was interested in a marriage green card. You'd have to spend thousands of, you know, dollars to, to generate any kind of meaningful uh, volume, and the reason is because you're competing against uh, lawyers who are charging people three to five thousand dollars per service, and so they can afford to spend a whole lot of money on AdWords, and you're just never going to outbid them, and that's what makes it really hard for for venture backed companies uh, in this space although there are a few exceptions here or there. Boundless is is, uh, doing a great job uh, in the immigration space. But tech nonprofits, you have... One of the things we learned at at Y Combinator is in the legal services space, a tech nonprofit will actually have an unfair advantage in uh, appearing first in Google search because there are various things that tech nonprofits can do to get trust markers that, that will cause Google to prioritize it. And so when you are appearing at the top of Google search results, like, like Upsolve is for bankruptcy, then you can reach so many low-income people who need help that you would never be able to reach if you were just buying ads.
0: I see why you're a fan of Sergey Brand.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I am a big fan of, of the old-fashioned Google search. I mean, if you can, as I said, if you can appear at the top of Google, you, are, you can reach the, the world. And that's, that's a really powerful thing.
0: Are there any other advantages to being a tech nonprofit? Well, I think
1: there are a lot. I mean, we have access to experts that we would never be able to afford as a for profit. We have, and, and also recruiting, we can, can attract some really talented people because the mission is, is so exciting and there, there are not a lot of tech nonprofits out there. a lot of the nonprofit space is, is really solving problems in doing awesome work, but solving problems in a very linear and incremental way. And that's super important but I think it's really exciting to employees to be able to be part of something that can solve like some of the biggest social problems in a really scalable way.
0: Awesome. How do you think about competition in nonprofits?
1: So our nonprofit competitors are, are basically brick and mortar legal aid organizations around the country. And as I said, they do awesome work, but the service model that they've chosen is, has, has just limited service capacity. So, so they're typically representing people, one lawyer to one client in person. And there's just never going to be enough free lawyers to to meet all the demand. And so these organizations typically have to turn away four out of every five people that come to them for help. And so we really see that as an opportunity, a partnership opportunity, where we can help them serve this excess capacity with a a tech-enabled model.
0: So you're saying you don't really have competition with nonprofits because you're all working on the same mission?
1: yeah I think I think that's right.
0: I know with Upsolve you had some earned revenue component and I'm curious if you have any advice on how to design that so it is effective.
1: yeah we're big believers that tech nonprofits should really think hard about how to make revenue at uh, at the start and design around that because it just makes things so much easier when you're not digging a bigger and bigger revenue hole for yourself, the more people that, that you help. And basically when we were part of Y Combinator in the winter of 2019, we were really, they, they really pushed us to, to think, how are you gonna become sustainable? And uh, what we learned was that there were many people that would come to, to our website and they just wanted to hire a lawyer. They didn't want a, a tech product. And, and so we started referring them to, to lawyers and then we we also learned is that lawyers would actually pay us to do these referrals because this was like a, a marketing expense for the lawyers. They were really excited to talk to people for free because there's some percentage of them they would be able to sign up as clients. And so that combination really led to us figuring out how to become sustainable from uh, referring all the you know, percentage of people who came to our website and weren't a good fit for Upsolve getting them the help they needed and getting revenue in the process.
0: So how do you think about setting pricing in a situation where it's the, the whole problem is someone doesn't have enough money?
1: Well, our service at Upsolve was, was always free, is always free. Um, okay. And so we were really monetizing the people that were not going to use our free service.
0: So you're saying you attracted attention from people who had the capacity and willingness to pay for a lawyer. And- exactly, yeah you were still helping those that, that couldn't afford a lawyer regardless. I understand. Exactly. When you talk about this desire to be sustainable, is earned revenue really about satisfying donors so that they feel like you're making some moves in that direction? Or is it about something more fundamental?
1: Oh, I think it's, it's about something more fundamental. Like The idea is never to have to rely on donors to, to get to the point where you are not losing money on, on every person that you help. Um, and so if you can do that, then you can scale basically indefinitely. And, you know, you can get philanthropy to invest in marketing, to, to grow things further. That's always possible. But uh, the idea is to never have to fundraise to keep the lights on.
0: Often when I talk to people, I hear confusion about, well, if you're doing that, aren't you essentially then pursuing a for-profit model? <laughs>
1: Miles, I get this a lot. And it's kind of infuriating. I think we just have these really self-limiting beliefs on what nonprofits should be. And I don't think that it's written down anywhere that being a nonprofit means you have to have a terrible business model. I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about (laughs) just helping people.
0: So say more about that. What's the difference? Well, the difference
1: is that if it costs you $100 $100 to help someone, if you're negative $100 to, to help one person, then no matter how great the service is that you're providing to that person, you're never going to be able to, to scale that service infinitely, right? Because you're just digging a bigger and bigger $100 hole with each person that you help. And uh, philanthropy is just is finite. But if you are breaking even, on each person you help, or, or maybe even making some small amount of profit, then you can scale uh, infinitely. Uh, and you can help just a, a whole lot more people because you, at your core, you are set up to, to do that.
0: Right. And how do you know when you're successful, effective as a nonprofit? I mean, the, the separation between who's paying for the service and who's getting the service, can sometimes drive, you know, uh, different feedback loops, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for us, our, our North Star has always been the amount of people that we are able to get successful legal status for. So, in bankruptcy, that's the the percentage of people uh, that were able to to get a discharge of their debts, in immigration, that would be the number of people who were able to get uh, legal status and 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 a work permit
0: anything else that you're really focused on or that's that's the thing and if if that's happening everything else falls into place
1: well the broader vision i think for for immigration is is twofold so the first is is there's so many uh, essential services for low income immigrants out there that can change people's lives job training job placement financial coaching, educational scholarships, but these nonprofits that are offering those services, they don't really have a core competency in SEO for, for the most part. And so it's really hard for them to reach everyone who needs their help. And so our vision is to, is to win SEO in, in the space and to become the place that low-income immigrants come uh, at the start of their immigration journey. And then, you know, after we've gotten them status, help them become a gateway for all of these other essential services that they need. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing that we get really excited by is creating community for immigrants. So being an immigrant is inherently an an isolating thing. You're different from everyone else and going through this immigration process, it it makes you feel alone. And we want to, uh, to build an online community where folks who are going through this process can share their experiences with one another. What was the interview like for you? How long did it take for this document to be approved? And if we can do that, then we can, on, on a bigger level, I think, make America a more welcoming place to, to low income immigrants and, and feel like we are welcoming them.
0: I, I think that's an ideal that uh, I'm excited about. Sign me up.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a journey. This is, this is, this is a you know, at least a 10-year journey, I think, to really, you know, accomplish all of these goals, but, but it's definitely a lot of fun to, to be working on.
0: What do most Americans not understand about immigration?
1: How scary it is. I think, you know, I'm, my dad was an immigrant, and so a little bit of this is in my DNA, but really when my wife was going through this process four years ago, only... Then did I really understand how how arbitrary this process can be? I mean, you can have done everything perfectly and have like a very simple, straightforward case, but then like you know your your paperwork gets lost by the government, or they uh, there's one you know blank square that's that's unmarked, or there is you know any any number of just really bizarre reasons, and then you're denied. And your life is, is in upheaval, the life that you thought you're going to build in the US. And that's just really, really scary.
0: So the arbitrariness and the yeah. detail oriented nature of the bureaucracy is, is yeah. scary. So. Yeah. What advice would you give to an aspiring founder?
1: I would say pick a problem that you really, really, really care about. I've seen. I've seen some really impressive founders start companies that had, you know, in in, in sexy areas like blockchain or or AI. I've seen a lot of them just sort of fizzle out because the the founders weren't really that passionate about the problem that they were solving. And there's so much, there's so much rejection, there's so much heartache uh, on the journey of being a founder uh, to go with all the awesome stuff. But in my experience, it's really when I'm feeling that heartache, it's, the, it's my passion for the problem that is what's pushing me through. It's like this, this problem needs to be solved. And if I don't do it, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't see another solution out there. So that is sort of the first principle that I always come back to is, is pick a problem that you would be excited to be working on for 10 years.
0: Be passionate about your problem. <laughs> it's it's pretty it's, it's
1: basic stuff. I mean, i I thinking of a Steve Jobs video that, uh, I saw recently uh, where he says the same thing in much more eloquent language. But that is, to me, that's where
0: it all starts from. Do you have any other resource you would recommend to aspiring founders? Is, is this video or a book or article you think is helpful? Yes,
1: I'm a huge fan of the great CEO within. You know, we talked about it. It's such a great distillation of startup advice uh, by a man named Matt Sherry. Uh, so that I would start there. And for inspiration, I would say uh, Phil Knight Shoe Dog. I read recently, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And he went on a really inspiring uh, entrepreneurial journey of of lots of ups and downs and a really entertaining. um, So that would be my second rec.
0: The great CEO Within has a five-star review on my website, uh, VenturePatterns.com. Check it out. You know, I read Shoe Dog and I really enjoyed it. I I agree with you. Something inspiring. He shares the struggle, the reality of the struggle in a way that comes through as more authentic. It's not just like a humble brag. It's like, no, it was really hard and I messed up and these things happened. And it was really uh, intriguing. It just really drew you in. And I personally don't care about shoes. Like the brand Nike doesn't mean much to me, but it's still a story that I think can really grab you if you're interested in entrepreneurship. So I would recommend that as well. Well, thank you for sharing all this with us and joining on the show. In closing, uh, where can people find out more about you uh, online?
1: Immigrationhelp.org. That is, that's our site uh, where you can just email me at uh, jonathan at immigrationhelp.org.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Miles. This was a lot of fun. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, and please give us a rating and review The reviews, help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website startupsforgood.com. That's startups for good all run together. No spaces.com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.